She says it's sad that the finds were carted away, taken for preservation. And she also feels it's a shame that these two sites are still rarely mentioned in prehistorical surveys of Taiwan. She says she hopes the artifacts unearthed in her hometown will be well cared for and that they will one day be returned. She also hopes for some sort of complete record of local history, something that's never existed until now. For now, though, the town's good state of preservation is testament to the work that her group's done. This work does continue to be a bit informal. For instance, tour guide bookings are still done only through Facebook message. But the group is happy to take outsiders to see their town, and they hope that in some way or another, they can pass their heritage on and hopefully put their town on the map once again. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Today, my guest is Ryan Terribilini, who is from Silicon Valley, California, and he's an entrepreneur. Uh, he previously worked for Google and Ripple, but uh, he's got a lot to tell about Taiwan, about himself, about his life, about all the things that he's doing. So let's meet Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Hi. Nice yes. to meet you, Shirley. Thank you for having me. Great. And you've been in Taiwan for three years, but it seems to me that you know a lot about Taiwan. You know, after you gave him some info about yourself, and I was thinking that, wow, this guy really understands Taiwan. And I thought you were going to tell me that you've been in Taiwan for 30 years. Well, <laughs> but it's if, only been if I had been years. in Taiwan for 30 years, I would have come when I was two years old. So that would have been too much. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, anyway. Um, so uh, why are you here in Taiwan in the first place? Yeah, it's a bit of a long story, but um, so being from Silicon Valley, kind of grew up in the shadow of great universities and these tech giants as they were coming up. So I remember going to the movie theater when I was a kid in Mountain View, it's the Century Cinemas, and uh, I remember seeing a sign, it's a funny, colorful sign, it says Google, you know, in, in bright rainbow colored letters. Yes. And I'm like to my dad, what's that company? He's like, oh, it's like a new... Uh, search engine you can type in whatever you want and find all this information about it on the internet and i'm like oh the internet okay how this, old were you then oh man well this was uh early 2000s so i was just getting into my like 10 11 12 that, that kind of era you know okay the, the blossoming of your brain you know before you're really using computers and stuff all the time because that era it was like you would really have to go take time out of your day to go sit at a computer, log on to America Online through a dial-up modem, those type of things. Yes. It wasn't, we, I think we've taken for granted the ubiquity of connectivity today, right? Right, now right. Everybody's got the computer in their pocket on the internet 24-7 a day. So. I know. Okay. So then I, I saw that and uh, I said, wow, okay, that's an interesting thing. Never thought I would end up working there one day. So just as I got older, you know, Google became a much bigger and stronger company and... Uh, Happened to go to Berkeley and stay in the Bay Area. So then I had the opportunity to go work at Google out of college right after the recession. Um, the team I was on at Google was focused on Android. So that was the mobile operating system that was uh, kind of trying to create an ecosystem around getting phone manufacturers all over the world to adopt this operating system on their phone. And Asia was a big source of growth for that. So the team that we had for that line of the business was actually based in Taipei. Because some oh. of the earliest Android phones were between HTC uh, yes. and uh, Google Hong as a Kong. I mean, a Taiwan brand. So Google was working very closely with HTC on the first Android phones. Oh, okay. This was in okay. 2009, 2008, 2009. 
Yeah. And so as an extension of that, there were some of the engineers and operations team um, for the work that we were doing at Google were based in the Taipei office. Okay. So then from there, I had opportunities to come here for business. Um, we had like a teammate that, you know, we kind of did an exchange. So I came to Taiwan for three months. She came to, she went to California for three months. So it's like we're cross-cultural exchange of Google employees across offices. So that was pretty cool. The first three months that you were here. Yeah. You fell in love with Taiwan. <laughs> yeah, I I didn't know what to expect. I honestly had a very limited impression. For me, uh, at that time, I was uh, 25, so I'd grown up in the Bay Area. I'd gone to school in the Bay Area, uh, worked in the Bay Area. I was just ready to go. I just wanted to go live and work somewhere else and just see what that was like, yeah. not really having any impressions or expectations about what Taiwan would be like. So Taiwan was your first Asian country that you've ever stepped on? Mm, I oh. think at that time... Definitely the first one I spent any extended time in. I okay. think I'd, I'd traveled to Thailand or some other place before. But So you you were working for Google, and uh, after some time, you figured that you want to just pack up and go somewhere, and you decided to come to Taiwan. Yeah, so after that experience, I was like, wow, Taiwan is great. would love to have the opportunity to come work here or live here at some point in time. And uh, so I went back to Silicon Valley, worked at another startup for two years, a startup called Ripple focused on cross-border payments between banks using blockchain technology. So that's a, a very interesting company, but that's a whole side story that we don't need to get uh, into. Yeah. Um, well, what did you study in college? I studied classical civilizations. So I'm always more humanities and histories focused. Interest. I thought you were going to say you're, you're an engineer or something like that and, because you work for Google and Ripple, and it's so different from, what is that, humanities? Mm. Yeah, so I think I'm very lucky and very grateful to have the opportunity to work in technology companies because some of them have the hiring approach that they don't care what your hard skills are. They care okay. about your mental adaptability <laughs> or at Google, they call it Googliness, which is this kind of <laughs> abstract uh, character traits that they like that they say, oh, this makes a good Google employee if they're intellectually curious or self-motivated, those type of things. So It's always good to be curious, I think. Definitely. Yeah. I feel like I haven't had a set plan for my life or career. I just follow my interests and then things lead from there. So. Oh, you're one of those people. Definitely. Okay. <laughs> I don't go in with like a five-year plan. I'm just like, hmm, okay, what's interesting me for the next year or two? Uh -huh. Then I dive in deep for a couple of years. And then after I feel like I have some grasp of it, then I just, another notch in the belt, right? Yeah. So what is it that you like about Taiwan? Can you be more specific? Yeah. So I guess that first three months in Taiwan, that was just like coming here kind of as a a cultural experience kind of as a tourist who didn't know what to expect because I didn't speak Mandarin at the time. Um, and it was just like, how do I integrate into the day-to-day -day life here? So, so many things for that were like, wow, Taiwan's, the people are very nice. That always strikes people, I think. This is the standard kind of checklist, right? Yes. The food is very interesting, very delicious. Very, <laughs> oh, you, very you used the word interesting. Okay. <laughs> it is, I mean, compared to what you're used to, yeah. I mean, there's like the sanitized version of, of Asian or Chinese cuisine that you would get in the U.S., right? Yes. Like lemon chicken or, or, or gong bao ji ding or something right. like that. But here it's like, okay, this is next level stuff. <laughs> you know, zhu xie gao and, and neil romian and that stuff. So okay, zhu really, xie really gao, that. that's uh, pig's blood cake. Yes. And uh, neil romian, that's yeah, beef noodle soup. Um, that's very, very popular here. We even have competitions for that. Um, yeah, I remember when I was in the States um, and I went to Chinatown and I was deciding between two restaurants. They were opposite the street from each other. I went to anyone, the one on the left, 
which turned out to be Americanized Chinese restaurant. I should have gone to mm. the right, the one on the right, because that's like real genuine Chinese right. you know, restaurant. If the menu is not in English, you know it's the genuine one. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> you know? So, huh. So you taste of uh, the real stuff. All right. So you know that, what I'm going to ask you next? Okay, what's that? What do you think about you stinky think? tofu? Oh, that's the standard question. Honestly, <laughs> I don't... I don't mind it. You brought I, me to it. I think I prefer the I prefer the fried stinky tofu. Yeah, I can see why. It seems a bit more, more palatable, you know, because yes. it's got the kind of crispiness on the outside. Yes. Generally, I, I, I think it's an interesting, tasty thing, but I wouldn't, it's not something I seek to go eat. You know? Sure. I don't mind eating it, but I like don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, not my favorite. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. You've been around Taiwan, yeah. I mean, besides I feel, Taipei, I feel like I've been to most of the. I've been to pretty much every big city. I'd say I just went to Xiaoliuqiu the other weekend. Mm. Have you been there? You know what? I don't think so. No, it, it's really worthwhile. It's yeah. quite quite easy to get to because you can just take the high speed rail down to to Zoying, Gaoxiong, right. then taxi, and then a thirty minute ferry ride. Okay. Yeah. And it's a beautiful little small island, tropical. Can go scuba dive, snorkel. Scooter around, eat some seafood. Very, so very relaxed the, pace. All the water activities and then seafood. Yes. That works. That works. <laughs> I, I, I snorkel with some sea turtles. There's a lot of big sea turtles there. Oh, good, good. How did you manage to master Chinese within the three years that you've been here? Oh, I would say I'm I far from mastered Chinese. Uh, but definitely the biggest uh, boost that I got in doing that was just after I left San Francisco, I came here and was just trying to figure out what to do next with my life. But in the meantime, it's like, I might as well start learning Mandarin. Good for you. Because I really want to learn a second language. And Taiwan's a great environment for practicing Chinese. So I enrolled at National Taiwan University's Language Center and just did uh, three semesters of full-time course. Mm, intense course, I yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're a smart guy, you know, from not knowing any Chinese before you came. Mm. And then three years later, I mean, you were fidgeting with that coffee machine we had just now and you could read the Chinese. Yeah. See? <laughs> I, love okay. co- I love coffee too, so I know the right characters. <laughs> okay. Anyway, you're an entrepreneur. What have you done? Um, start talking about all the things you've done and startups and, and, and whatnot. And what got to this report mm. that you wrote up in detail about Taiwan's, I don't know, uh, political scene, uh, its economy, you know, um, it was actually quite exciting to read your report. Thank you. I mean, at a fast pace, but you know, yeah. And the full thing will be published hopefully by the end of this month. So kind oh, of cool. time, timely right after the election. So, oh, oh, yeah, really. Okay. So what have you done while you're in Taiwan these three years? I've done quite a few things, but um, to kind of preface why I've had this kind of intellectual interest in Taiwan, I should go back to uh, a couple things. One was having the experience of working here at Google. Uh, two was then kind of learning Mandarin. And during that time period, I was learning Mandarin. I was also kind of doing what I usually do, which is be a history nerd and kind of go around to the different uh, political sites or cultural sites and get an understanding of the generations of migration here or the Japanese cultural influence and those type of things. So, right, because you're half Dutch, half... What's the other half? Sorry. Uh, well, my last... My surname, Terribilini, Swiss-Italian. So my dad, my great... My great-grandfather emigrated to California in the 1890s to be a dairy farmer from Switzerland. Uh-huh. And then okay. my, my I'm first-generation American on my mom's side. My grandparents are Dutch Holocaust survivors. So after the war, they moved to Australia. My mom was born in Australia and then uh, 
came to the U.S. in the 1960s. See, your family history is quite a history itself. So no wonder it gets you curious when reading about a new place Absolutely. and learning up on its culture and history, which you're probably more detailed than I am. Totally. Even though totally. I'm Taiwanese. Yes. So I think my, that family history that I have is one of the driving passions for me when it comes to actually uh, understanding and appreciating Taiwan's modern political history. Because having seen what my grandparents had to go through to survive the war and uh, the life that they've had to work hard to achieve, yes, uh, makes me realize just how special Taiwan's situation has been. Oh, okay. You know, going from 40 years of military dictatorship into this democratization period. Yes. You know, with all these protections of human rights and free speech and things like that. So, Thank you very much. You just made me realize we've come a long way. Absolutely. <laughs> This little island country. Okay. And yeah. People, people shouldn't lose sight of the history, right? I even, don't know. Even, the, even the younger generation, you know, they don't take these freedoms for granted because they were harder right. by the previous generations. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I think about that in my situation because kind of have the American dream situation, immigrant, immigrant grandparents, born in California, access to the great public schools and all those things. But you don't always... You got to be grateful for what they had to go through to get you to that point, right? True, true. Okay, so after going visiting all the different museums and learning up on Taiwan's culture yes. and uh, politics and history, then they got you an idea for a startup? No, so <laughs> then there's one more step before the startup. Uh, okay. The step before the startup is uh, I was going to uh, apply to graduate schools, so I applied for master's in public policy at the University of Oxford, so there's a, a school of government there. Uh, so I wanted to go, so yeah, you know, a uh, thousand year old ancient university, one of the most yes. prestigious schools in the world, uh, amazing program with people, 120 students from 70 countries. So kind of like the equivalent of the United Nations at Oxford. Mm. So you have these amazing historic surroundings with people who are future prime ministers and government leaders from all over the world. And like, this is a very exciting time to be at Oxford. Yes. Because it was at the same time where I was one of 10 Americans and Donald Trump was elected president. <laughs> <laughs> which got a lot of flack for me. People were like, what is wrong with your country? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that, that, in retrospect, that was a, a very special and historic time to be, be in that place. But beyond American politics, um, what I came to realize when I was there is that Taiwan is a very important case study. When you meet people from other countries that are trying to achieve the same government outcomes or same economic outcomes, and then Taiwan is this amazingly rich and interesting story of how it was accomplished. And so few people are familiar with it. So that got me really, uh, I don't want to say evangelizing, but uh, definitely informing a lot of my classmates from, from Afghanistan, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, uh, places all over the Middle East, Africa, Asia, about you know, the unique Taiwan story and experience. So that made me very passionate to be like, okay, Taiwan is, I know the history now. Uh, I know a bit of the language. Uh, I've gone and talked to people who will be leading governments one day. <laughs> So how do I further kind of promote Taiwan and what Taiwan can do for the rest of the world? So my conclusion was maybe I should go back to Taiwan and start a company. As simple as that. That was a, a process to lead you to the next step in your life because you don't make five-year plans. Okay. Or 10-year plans for that matter. All right. No. Nope. So you came to Taiwan. I came to Taiwan and uh, I had the opportunity to do so on a couple grounds. So one was uh, being from San Francisco. That's a sister city of Taipei. Uh, yeah, right. So uh, I was able to get a scholarship to continue my Chinese studies from the Taipei city government. Next week, Ryan Terry Bellini will begin by talking about this other research grant that he got for doing a paper. For In the Spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin. 
Classic Shorts: Stories from Chinese History and Literature. Saturday was the fifteenth day of the first month of the Lunar New Year, and that is when Taiwan celebrates the Lantern Festival. This year, the Lantern Festival was opened by a drone show featuring over eight hundred drones. It was a fantastic show in Taizong, but all the celebrations and the tradition of eating a special dessert called tangyuan, those little white glutinous rice balls, started a long time ago in ancient China when a little girl missed her parents. In the Han Dynasty, there was a highly esteemed advisor of the emperor named Mister Eastern. One winter day, he went into the garden and heard a little girl crying. She was getting ready to jump into a well to commit suicide. What's your name? What are you doing here, and and why are you crying? My name is Yuan Xiao. I'm a maid in the emperor's palace. I haven't been able to see my family ever since I started working here. If I can't be a good daughter to my parents in this life, then I might as well die. Don't you think of it. Don't despair. I'll find a way for you to see your family again. Trust me. Mr. Eastern left the palace and set up a fortune-telling stall on the street. He was so famous for his wisdom that crowds of people came to ask him to tell them their fortune. There's going to be a terrible city-wide fire on the fifteenth day of the new year. Everyone believed what Mr. Eastern said. The rumor quickly spread, and people were frantic. Mr. Eastern, what should we do about the fire? Mr. Eastern, what should we do about the fire? On the thirteenth day of the lunar new year, the god of fire will send a fairy in red riding a black horse to the city. When you see the fairy, you should ask her for mercy. On that day, Yuan Xiao pretended to be the Red Fairy. Miss Fairy, please help us. Please tell the God of Fire to spare our lives. Take this decree from the God of Fire to the Emperor. This will warn the Emperor about a city-wide fire two days from now. They took the decree to the Emperor right away, and it said that the capital city. Would burn down on the fifteenth day of the lunar year. A citywide fire, Mister Eastern. What shall we do? The god of fire likes to eat tangyuan. Tell your maid Yuan Xiao to cook tangyuan on that day. Tell every household to do the same to please the god of fire. Every house should also hang red lanterns and set off firecrackers. And everyone in the city should walk in the city streets carrying lanterns. That way, the god of fire will be fooled and think the fire has already come, and your palace shall be the grandest of all, with a beautiful display of lanterns for all to see. Perfect idea, Mister Eastern. Your advice is wise as always. Tell the citizens to do as you said. So on the fifteenth day of the new lunar year, lanterns were everywhere in the capital city, and everyone was walking out on the street. Firecrackers could be heard everywhere, and it really looked as if the city were on fire. The best of all, 
Yuan Xiao's parents went into the palace to look at the lantern decorations and were reunited with their daughter. The festival was a success and the people were happy and impressed with the palace's beautiful lanterns. Now let us hold this lantern festival every year on the 15th day of the lunar year. And that is the legend of how the lantern festival started. Classic Short Proverbs During the Chinese New Year holidays, people say all kinds of New Year greetings to each other. Some popular ones are 10,000 things as wished. 万事如意 万事如意 Another one like it is Heart think Thing happen 心想 when I first heard those sayings, I thought they were a little exaggerated. How can 10,000 things go as one wishes? But it's more or less like the English saying, May all of your dreams come true. So, 10,000 things as wish. 万事如意 And heart think thing happened. 心想事成 Which New Year greeting do you like better? 10,000 things as wish? 万事如意万事如意 Or heart think thing happened. 心想事成心想事成 Write me and let me know. My email is natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E, at R-T-I dot O-R-G dot T-W. In any case, wishing you a happy Chinese New Year. Thanks for joining me on Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. This is Radio Taiwan International. You're listening to News Playlist. We've queued up some of the most interesting reports for you, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Welcome to News Playlist. I'm Paula Chow, the program host. Today, we will first take a look at the recent blood donation drive in Taiwan. Before the Lunar New Year holiday, blood donation centers island-wide called on the public to donate blood. As doors are running low, blood banks generally consider a supply that can sustain demand for at least nine days safe. Currently, some locations do not have enough stock to last a week. Blood is in short supply in Taiwan. All five of the country's major blood donation centers are understocked. Taichung Blood Donation Center official Chen Junwei says the amount of blood donated on one given day was 500 bags fewer than expected. Of the four blood types, type A and O are most urgently needed. 
In Taipei, there's only 4.5 days worth of Type A blood, while Type O blood stores sit at 5.2 days. Taichung only has enough Type A and Type O blood for 6.3 days and 4.9 days respectively. Chen says there is currently a spike in demand for blood because a lot of patients choose to undergo surgery before the Lunar New Year holiday. Chen also says people are less motivated to donate blood during this time of the year because they are busy with spring cleaning and family reunions. The winter holiday season is also a factor. And how to encourage the public to donate their blood? A temple in the central county of Nanto has boosted the blood donations by offering donors lucky coins, a symbol of prosperity. Inside a blood donation vehicle, nurses are busy drawing blood. Outside, more people lined up, waiting for their turn. As health precautions following the outbreak of the novel coronavirus in China, one nurse says donors must have their hands disinfected and temperatures taken first. Given the outbreak and the cold weather, few people go out, let alone donate blood. So why are they so enthusiastic about it? There is an incentive. Donors will get a silver painted lucky coin for every 250 cc of blood they donate. And if they donate 500 cc, they get a gold painted one too. The lucky coins are a symbol of prosperity and wealth. Temple official Zhuang Qiuan says the number of donors is twice what they expected. Together, the three blood donation vehicles collected over 500 bags of blood. After a long holiday filled with feasting, many in Taiwan are starting New Year's diets. A naturopath from the U.S. has written that a person's success in losing weight depends on their blood type. Taiwanese doctors don't necessarily agree. Almost everyone gains some weight from overeating during the Chinese New Year holiday. American naturopath Peter J. Adamo says your blood type can determine whether you succeed at losing weight. According to D. Adamo, all blood type people are optimists, so they tend to have a hard time losing weight. D. Adamo also says that those with A or AB blood types are more cautious and are harsh on themselves about cutting those pounds. D. Adamo also says that those with O blood type like to try new things, so intense exercise might be more fitting for them. He says those with blood type A should do soothing kind of exercises like yoga, while those with blood type B are usually cheerful, so fun exercises like cardio or jumping rope are more suitable. However, Dr. Hong Jiande of Taiwan still thinks that the real key to dieting is the number of calories you eat. He says exercising is important, but cutting oil and sugar is most vital. Shirley Lin, RTI News. This is News Playlist, a weekly rundown of some of the most interesting news reports brought to you by RTI. Watch along on YouTube if you like, or close your eyes and enjoy these stories by way of sound. Taiwan offices disinfect hands, take temperatures and more as people return to work after the Lunar New Year holiday. Disinfecting hands, taking temperatures, and providing free masks. These are the precautions that workplaces are taking as people return to their jobs after the Lunar New Year holiday. Online job service general manager Liu Meikui said that many managers went to work early to disinfect and to show employees they are serious about protecting them from the virus. 
Many companies have canceled meetings and back-to-work prayers to prevent the spread of the virus. People participating in the prayer ceremonies wear face masks. Most people on the Taipei Metro are also wearing face masks. They are also disinfecting ticket machines and handrails every eight hours. This employee says offices are protecting people's health and it's relieving some anxiety. The Ministry of Labor says that companies must monitor people's health. Employers who ban workers from wearing face masks can be fined up to 300,000 NT dollars. Emily So, RTI News. And Taiwan's first charter flight from Wuhan arrived on Monday night carrying 247 passengers. Five had been sent to the hospital, and the rest had been quarantined. There were 247 Taiwanese aboard the first charter flight, bringing them back from Wuhan, China, on Monday night. Medical personnel wore protective gear, and all the passengers wore face masks. Upon arrival, they were screened on the plane for symptoms of the new coronavirus. Those with no symptoms disembarked first. One passenger had a fever, two had respiratory problems, and one child had a stomachache. The child and the three patients went to the hospital, along with the child's mother. Minister of Health and Welfare Chen Shizong said that the three are being quarantined and sent to a hospital ward for tests. The shed, airplane, flight attendants and suitcases have all been thoroughly disinfected. The other passengers took 14 tour buses to three quarantine destinations in Linko, Wulai and Taizong. They will each be quarantined in separate rooms for two weeks. Health official Shu Zhongliang said there are health and national security officials stationed at each of the quarantine stations. All of the passengers settled in their rooms by 7 a.m. Tuesday. Taipei, Taoyuan and Taizong hospitals will be monitoring and treating them. They will have their temperatures taken twice a day and be sent to the hospital if they have any symptoms. During the quarantine, they will not have physical contact with anyone. Nanli So, RTI News. The ongoing coronavirus outbreak has affected many activities in Taiwan. The latest event that could be canceled due to fear of the virus spreading is the Tainan Half Marathon. The Tainan Half Marathon is a popular annual running event held in Tainan in southern Taiwan. This year, a total of 298 runners from 29 countries around the world have signed up for the upcoming run, scheduled on March 1st. However, the event might not take place at all due to concerns over the ongoing coronavirus outbreak centered in China. So far, nine Taiwanese residents have contracted the virus, and a few hundred were found to have come in contact with them. Tainan Education Bureau Director Cheng Xinhui said the city is in discussion with the host company regarding plans for the event. Cheng said they will announce the final decision in mid-February. Jake Chen, RTI News. The novel coronavirus outbreak in China is taking its toll on the global economy, and fruit farmers in Taiwan's Taidong County are feeling the pinch too. It's the first day of work after the extended Lunar New Year holiday. Fruit farmers in southeastern Taiwan's Taidong County head out to the fields to collect custard apples that are as big as a baby's head. Fruit farmer Li Zhongwu says that this batch of custard apples is headed to Singapore. Li is lucky. Many of the county's fruit farmers are unable to get their produce out to where it needs to go. 
That's because China is shut down. As an outbreak of novel coronavirus spreads, China has extended its Lunar New York holiday to February 2nd, and China's custom agency is closed. Under normal circumstances, local farmers can rely on China for a handsome profit. The county produces 10,000 metric tons of custard apples and pineapples each year, a crop worth 1 billion New Taiwan dollars. 90% of this is sold to China. The local government is stepping in to help, trying to find alternative markets. It is also offering farmers advice about how to offset foreseeable losses. With fruit, though, time is of the essence. Leslie Liao, RTI News. And that's all we have for this week's edition of News Playlist. I hope you have enjoyed listening to our show today. For Radio Taiwan International, I'm Paula Chow. See you next week. We extended the practice time, we push harder, we work harder. We can't get sick because it's the Olympic year, and I like it. I like that they can breathe in the Olympic energy. Um, Think I want to include a delegation of 45 people. It, it's a very big delegation, and we're going uh, under the name Taiwan. Hello, and welcome to this week's On the Line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Even though artistic swimming has been an event at the Summer Olympics since 1984, that is not the case with the Paralympics. In 2014, the founder of Synchronized Swimming Association of Taiwan, Ms. Julia Starch, along with other eight countries, worked hard to make it possible for artistic swimmers with disabilities to compete in the Paralympics. In 2020, the sport will be presented to Paralympics Committee and Synchronized Swimming Association of Taiwan will travel to Tokyo with a team of 45 this year with the sponsorship of Tajong Company and Be Happy Corporation from Taiwan. To find out more, we are joined today by the founder of Synchronized Swimming Association of Taiwan, Ms. Julia Starch, who is also the founder of Russian Club in Taiwan. Julia, you founded Russian Club in Taiwan and Synchronized Swimming Association of Taiwan. Now, tell us the idea of the founding of these two different organizations. For Russian Club of Taiwan, I have been a chairwoman for the past three years, and I tried to present our community with us lots of charity and the community that helps a community that sh- shares culture, Slavic culture, with the local people. For Synchronization Association of Taiwan, the idea was similar. I love the sport, and I wanted to share the beauty of the sport with the Taiwanese. And I wanted local children to be able to join international events and be more open and exposed to international sport culture. What you have done is very different from most uh, coaches. I know that you are a coach yourself. You have been involved in the coaching of children with disabilities for more than 20 years. Now, tell us how you started and what challenges you faced in the last 20 years. Um, Most of the coaches have ego and they want to develop their level of um, performance. They want to go higher. For me, I wanted 
to expose the sport to as many children as possible. And I wanted to make it fair. I wanted to make it possible for every child to be a part of the team, including children with disabilities. I don't like saying disabilities because we all have disabilities. We all have limited abilities. So if the child has a, um, I don't know, hearing problem, or is it a visual impaired child, or is it the amputees, or the child with mental disabilities? I don't want it to be left out. I want it to be an equal part of the society. The, every child deserves life, sporting events, you know, celebration, winning, losers, all, all this, that should be available for every child. That's how I thought. I didn't think about how to become a super famous coach who brings Taiwan to the Olympic, but... I wanted to make a fair possibility for every child in Taiwan to be a part of sport life. Mm -hmm. And do these children with disabilities need to have water therapy to build up the muscle power before swimming? Yes, our team is a little bit more than just a sporting team. It's their life. For me, it's not the athlete. That comes with the whole family, which I usually welcome. It's the whole family involved in our events. I know the family situation. Usually that's older or younger brothers who become volunteers for our association. Because um, artistic swimming is a kind of sport that's easy to adjust and modify. So I, me and my coaches have to be very creative how to adjust it to every child according to his or her abilities. Uh, swimming skills are not important. They learn it. The most important thing to become a part of the team and learn how to be a part of the team. That's the most important thing. Yes, it's, it's some kind of therapy, yes, because you are part of the team, and um, you learn a lot of skills, including social skills, not only swimming skills and dancing skills. To be a part of the team, to learn social skills, but how do you train children with different disabilities? For example, uh, children with visual impairment that you mentioned earlier, amputations, mobility, disabilities, and even CP, cerebral palsy? Uh, the, the coaching principles are the same. Do your best. Push your own limits. Then I don't look at them like a disabled children. They're athletes for me. I push with the same. I insist the same as I insist on the lip limits. But I have to be more creative to see the child's personal limits, the child's personal ability, and to present uniqueness. Say if the child is visually impaired, right? So I have to use manual, like they touch my body, they see how my body moves, and all I have to explain in more detail. If the child has cerebral palsy and cannot move legs, we add more arm movements. So yes, it's a little bit challenge for the coach, but aren't we like challenges? Mm -hmm. And the one that's going to Japan, this is a very important uh, year for athletes as well. Uh, because they will compete in the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games uh, coming this summer. Now, your team from Taiwan will take part in the 29th Para-Artistic Swimming Festival, an international friendly game in Tokyo alongside the Olympic Games. Can you tell us more? Yes, 2020 is big for athletes. It's Olympic year. And I'm happy to tell you that for my athletes with disability, they, it, they feel this. They feel that it's an Olympic year, too. We extended the practice time. We push harder. We work harder. We can't get sick because it's the Olympic year. And I like it. I like that they can breathe in the Olympic energy. Team Taiwan will include a delegation of 45 people. 
including disabled athletes, non-disabled athletes, uh, coaches, chaperones. It's a very big delegation. It's, it wasn't like that at the beginning, but it's like a snowball, and now it's 45 people, and we're going uh, under the name Taiwan, and we're proud. <laughs> You're listening to Underline, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Today I'm speaking with Miss Julia Starch, the founder of Synchronized Swimming Association of Taiwan, and she's going to bring a team of 45 people to the Olympic Games in the summer this year. Can you tell us how you select your team? Uh, we had a mock competition and pre-competition we we hosted like twice a semester, my coaches and I, and to give children a feeling of competition, to give them a motivation. Uh, we select swimmers which are more capable. The most selection goes with them elite swimmers. They're supposed not to be only good athletes, but they're also supposed to have some kind of social skills. Because swimming with disabled athletes is not easy. You have to slow down. And believe me, slowing down is more difficult than speed up. You have to put your ego in your pocket. And um, it's, it's actually it's more effort to slow down. Uh-huh. So this is a part of the practice as well. Yes, especially for young athletes who are very ambitious, for young elite athletes, very ambitious athletes, for them to learn how to slow down for the, for the person next to you, this is big. Apart from slowing down, Julia, tell us more about the practice of uh, all these children, especially knowing that you know, some of them might be selected to go to Tokyo. Uh, we have to do the most from every practice because Taiwanese children are very busy with school life, family life, so we have no right to waste a second of practice time. Uh, we can't uh, call it sick or if uh, or weather, if the weather is not suitable for practice. We do our best every single time. Every single practice we have to achieve. It has to be one little step forward. And every time there is an excuse not to do that, and every time I refuse to <laughs> slow, I refuse to stop practice or postpone something. Every time it's, it must be a little step forward. Mm-hmm. Constant pushing the limits. Yeah, constant pushing the limit. In 2014, Synchronized Swimming Association of Taiwan, along with other eight countries, worked hard to make it possible for artistic swimmers with disabilities to compete in Paralympics. Now, what was the idea behind that, uh, Julia? Mm. We realized that this is a sport that's suitable for people with disabilities. From my experience, I don't do any advertisement for my classes and for my company. I refuse to spend resources for that. I open registration for next term. Three teams were occupied in two hours. Three teams (laughs) were booked. And considering that I don't do any advertisement, three teams of assets with disabilities, all the seats were taken in two hours after registration was open. It means the sport is popular suitable, people want to practice, people want to come, it, they need it. It's something that we need, that society needs. And if the athletes want to practice the sport, they need a bigger competition to compete. So far, the biggest competition is Olympics. It's not easy to add a new sport to Paralympics, time-wise, money-wise, uh, resources. But we're trying to show that this is a sport that 
has to be presented. The number of countries will increase from 8 to 24. Have you been lobbying other countries as well? We in touch with many countries. Many countries develop the sport. Um, many countries are very successful. And we're trying to get all together because every country has its own you know, cultural differences, different sporting facilities, different funding, the way the government looks. Sometimes it's government organizations, sometimes it's private organization like mine. So we try to bring it on the same page and set up clear rules and regulations. We're moving forward to it, but it's it's a lot of work, I have to say, because mm. everyone has a different idea and different situation. But I believe we'll find something unique that will bring us together. Why has artistic swimming not been included in the Paralympics? Um, because it's a young sport in the Olympics. This sport is quite young. Uh, another thing, Paralympics are um, a very young competition. It hasn't been around for a long time. And, of course, setting rules and regulations is another question. The rules and regulations must be very clear and um, settled. Now, why does each country need to put artistic swimming in Paralympics? That has to be 22 countries that develop the sport. So the sport must be well developed on, on every continent. Mm-hmm. And ma- we're getting there. We're very close. We have huge success over the past five years. Earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, time-wise, when it comes to challenges, also money-wise. How do you get your sponsorship? Money is the last thing I worry. I realize if you're doing the right thing, you will be supported. Uh, when we received the invitation for Tokyo 2020, I made phone calls to the athletes. I tried to convince them. They told me, oh, it's far, it's expensive, we have to spend money on treatment. And um, three athletes said, okay, well, we're going to do it. So we decided to call a fundraising. The fundraising was called by a boy named Alex. Alex is a student at our cultural center, Matryoshka. Um, he, he has a CP. He suffers from cerebral palsy. He doesn't walk. He's not very verbal, but when Alex says something, this is something. <laughs> Alex and his mom announced the campaign on a beat in 26 minutes. We raised the goal, 26 minutes. There were people from all over the island donating 500, 300, 1,000, and in 26 minutes we achieved our financial goal. Then more athletes, when, when people see the movement, more athletes with disabilities wanted to, jo- to join. So in 20 hours, we found money for 12 athletes with disabilities to travel. And then another two companies got in to support coaches' expenses and uh, uniform. Uh, and it's been very successful. For now, we have 45 people, and we managed to subsidy air-free for disabled athletes, other, other athletes and going on their own expenses. Yes, it's been very inspiring seeing how people support us. You know, um, it's not government, It's not they're not wealthy people, they're not powerful people. They're just people, and it's small amount from each person, and look, Team Taiwan is going to be there. So I wish you the best of luck, and I'm sure you will shine there in the Tokyo Olympic Games. And we've been joined on the phone today by Ms. Julia Starch, the founder of Russian Club in Taiwan and Synchronized 
Swimming Association of Taiwan, and she will be bringing a group of 45 people to Tokyo Olympic Games this summer. And that's it for today's On the Line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next weekend. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.